Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 599 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 23rd of January 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Caitlin Duncan about how to take back your book, an author's guide to rights reversion and publishing on your terms. So if you don't know about rights reversion, it's basically when you ask for, and hopefully get, certain rights back after a period of time, or conditions have changed according to contractual terms. For example, uh, with an older contract, it might be that the book is out of print, although in newer ones that doesn't really happen, or after a certain number of years have passed according to a foreign rights contract that might be for you know 10 years or something, or for exclusivity periods, that might be seven years for an old ACX contract or a 90-day exclusivity for KU. So if you if you have signed a contract in any way for your book or you have uploaded your work to a website, <laughs> which most of uh, indie authors have, you have licensed in some way. And rights reversion is when you get those rights back. Now, ideally, you think about these things before you take an action, before you sign a contract, because if you get terms in a contract, uh, it's much easier to sort it out later. So for example, if you have a seven year term, you know, in seven years, you can get those rights back. Um, But that's the type of thing you need to know up front, because it can be very hard otherwise. So uh, things will change in the future. And of course, uh, Caitlin talks about this, but time flies like I've been thinking about this recently I started writing like properly for I want to do this properly in 2006 (laughs) it feels like oh my goodness that's 15 years that's longer than my old career Um, and in fact uh, I was a consultant I think was I a consultant for 13 years uh, full-time so essentially I've only got a couple more years before I will beat my full-time old career which is very strange uh, but yes anyway this is coming up in the interview section this is kind of a long-term thinking thing but also if you have signed contracts with publishers and you you don't you're not happy with the way things are going uh, this might help get your rights back so that's coming up in the interview section just a disclaimer up front I am not a lawyer and neither is Caitlin and we're not agents we're not financial advisors uh, we are not legal or financial professionals so this is just a discussion of experienced uh, experience and research and you can get help with your contracts through the Alliance of Independent Authors or through other authors organizations like the Authors Guild or the Society of Authors or whatever it's called in your country. In publishing and book marketing news. So Chris Rush has an article on the splits in indie publishing, which is, I think, really interesting and something we all have to acknowledge because not all independent authors are the same these days, not by a long shot. Uh, In those early days, sort of 2009, there, there really was only one choice and then things started to change. And as the movement has matured, uh, lots of things have moved on and, and there are different kind of ways of doing stuff. So Chris notes differences between sort of the 
original self-publishing, <laughs> which does not involve paying anyone else to do the publishing side, like many of the hybrid models. She also talks about the individual data managers or data-driven writers who chase algorithm shifts and market trends and use data essentially to drive their career. And certainly it, that works for those people who have that kind of mind. <laughs> and I certainly don't. <laughs> then she also talks about small writer-owned publishers, which have emerged. And that might include Chris's own, uh, Chris and Dean's WMG Publishing, which publishes their books and anthologies and things. Um, also, uh, probably now includes things like Mark Dawson and James Blatch's Fuse books, which um, have sort of emerged out of the, the indie way. And then there are bigger companies after that, um, you know, as things grow. Now, Chris ends the article by saying, and she essentially says, I'm going to ignore traditional publishing because that is, <laughs> it's not important anymore, which is quite funny. Um, she, that's not a direct quote from her. You'll have to read the article. But Chris ends by saying, I think indie publishing is on the cusp of becoming the dominant form of publishing, not just in the numbers of books published, but in revolutionising the way that books are marketed. We're seeing the changes now. They began about five years ago, but escalated in 2020. Now a lot of this change is becoming visible. There will be more changes in the years to come. 2022 will be quite interesting on this front. I can't wait to see which changes survive and which ones won't. We're in a period of great innovation. It'll be fun to watch what comes of it all. And I, I love this attitude. I mean, obviously, this is partly why I share a lot of what I've called futurist stuff, which is now becoming like real time stuff. AI voice and blockchain and, and all these types of things were futurist. And now they're becoming kind of a tipping point of potentially mainstream in the next year or two. And, and what Chris says there, I can't wait to see which changes will survive and which ones won't. I think this is really important. And I kind of feel this a lot with the various blockchain companies that are emerging for NFT for books. There's now at least six that I know of um, and there's more emerging all the time and this is definitely going to become a thing in 2022 but as Chris says, which ones will survive and which won't? And it almost feels like sort of 1999 sort of 98, 99 when there were all these companies jumping on the dot-com boom and then obviously the crash happened and yet the companies that emerged, Amazon being one of them became the dominant companies of 20 years later. And that's kind of how I feel right now. Of course, you can't pick. <laughs> it's very hard to pick what might last and what won't, but it is fun to watch for sure. So the reason I'm uh, one of Chris's patrons and have been reading her blog and buying her nonfiction books and attending her courses in person for years, and also her husband and business partner Dean Wesley Smith is because they have stayed full-time writers for over 30 years perhaps even 40 years <laughs> and they've seen changes and they've pivoted their own career and their business as they've needed to they learn from their mistakes and they've made lots and they admit to that uh, and they pick up new technology not straight away but they definitely pick it up and I've been, as I've said, I've been full time for over a decade now and long may it last. Uh, but I think it will only last if I keep learning, I keep pivoting, I keep iterating and changing as the world shifts. And as ever, I hope to keep sharing the journey. So that article's on chriswrites.com, K-R-I-S writes.com. And Chris, Chris's blog is one of my must reads. One of my pretty much I listen to every week is the Six Figure Author podcast. And this week they had a show on burnout and writer's block. 
Joe, Lindsay and Andrea share some really personal stuff. Now, it might be the season <laughs> for sharing how hard it's been for everyone lately. And there was actually an article uh, today in, the, in one of the papers about the sort of post-lockdown depression. And I know many of you have been feeling this and have emailed me after I shared some of my issues from last year. It was like the, the catastrophic period of the early pandemic we all rallied and got on with things and then you just can't sustain that energy. And what's interesting is that Lindsay and Joe and Andrea have all been full-time for a, about a decade as well. And they talk about how the long-term perspective also works in terms of burnout and writer's block. And what are the differences between burnout and writer's block and how these things might impact your career, your income, your happiness and, and what you want to do with your life and so definitely an interesting show and I found it fascinating so that is the six figure author podcast and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts and also publisher rocket just had an update uh, I, I use rocket you know for every single book and in between books for doing keywords and categories and they have just um, updated it to include audible data. So you can now check competition in Audible, see sales data, find categories and see how many downloads you'd need to be a bestseller in an Audible category. Um, so you can use my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash rocket uh, to check out Rocket or you can obviously go to publisherrocket.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's really useful. I think audio, <laughs> audio is so... It's, it's so difficult to figure out. And of course, Audible really is now more of a, even though you pay officially, you pay for a credit in my market anyway, in the UK, and I think the US is still the same. I'm now, I do find myself treating it more like a subscription program because I, you get this, you could also listen to all these other things. So I, I try more audio with their new model of doing things. But I, I mean, as we've talked about before, it's hard to know how authors are paid for this kind of thing. But yeah, most of their books, they're in Audible exclusive and I'm not Audible exclusive, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> and I guess on Audible contracts, you can always have a look at the Audible Gate website to see how that's going, which is still an ongoing thing. In my personal update, I finished the edits on Stone of Fire, which was uh, much more epic than expected and much needed after more than a decade and more than a million words written since then, <laughs> or I guess a million words published since then. Uh, so I sent it to my proofreader and then I'll be re-uploading the ebook versions, but I will issue a new edition for the print and just link those new copies. I will be doing a blog post or even a whole episode on this once it's all finished in case it's something you want to do yourself. I've certainly got a lot of uh, sort of notes on how to improve your writing from that first novel. I also published Blood, Sweat and Flame, a new short story that I actually wrote over a year ago. I wrote during that January lockdown last year. Uh, it's inspired by Blown Away on Netflix, which is all about glass blowing. <laughs> <laughs> which if you haven't watched Blown Away, uh, that partic particularly that first series, um, it inspired the story. So here's the blurb. Is victory worth blood, sweat and flame? Cass blows glass for a living, but when she's not cranking out tourist pieces to pay the bills, she creates unique glass art with the dream of winning a prestigious award that might just change her life. But Cass has a problem. The heat and intensity of the glass-blowing hotshop has damaged her eyesight and time is running out. She only has one chance left to win and a rival artisan stands in her way. 
the trophies on his shelf testament to his enduring popularity. When his son comes to work alongside Cass, she must make a choice that will change their lives, a choice that will cost blood, sweat and flame. Da, da, da. <laughs> I really, I feel like I have learned from Michael Brent Collings uh, after we did that episode last year on on your fiction book descriptions. I mean, I want to read that story. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, it is a short story. And because I haven't done that well with short stories wide, I have, again, put it in KU uh, like I did with A Midwinter Sacrifice last month. And you can also buy it for 99 cents or P on Amazon. And I will be narrating the short story myself uh, in the next couple of weeks. A review would be much appreciated if you check it out. And hopefully I'll have enough for a collection by the end of the year and then I'll just put everything wide with the collection. I also finished James Clear's audiobook of Atomic Habits. And basically I read, audio, read, listen to audiobooks when I walk and I read my Kindle in bed, I read fiction and then I read non-fiction like at different points during the day or I read print or listen or whatever. So I, I have different books on the go at the same time. And the audiobook, uh, I I really, as obviously I've been talking about it now for a few weeks, but the final chapter has remained with me. And in fact, I have now added a quote to my wall of quotes and inspirational things by my desk. And the quote is, the greatest threat to success is not failure, but boredom. And that is a quote from James Clear, Atom- Atomic Habits. And this has, this has struck with me because I'm in like week three of um, sort of taking control of my eating again. And uh, I'm still dry January and, uh, you know, I'm working out more and trying to just reset things. And the boredom is definitely setting in. And, I, and I, he talks about the repetition of things like weight training, which I really enjoy, uh, but that you have to deal with the repetition of boring tasks if you want to be successful. So, uh, for example, it is boring. It is more boring to cook healthy food at home than it is to order an awesome takeout with high fat, sugar, salt um, and a bottle of wine. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, it is far more fun to do the latter. But the greatest threat to success is that boredom of the healthy food and the exercise, for example. Um, And it's also true of the professional writing life because no writer spends every day in some magical flow state streaming amazing words onto the page. I mean, that just it might happen occasionally, <laughs> but mostly uh, it's about getting your butt in the chair and getting the work done. And sometimes that's boring. And I think newer writers must, and I think I thought, you know, newer writers think, oh, well, if it's boring, then I can't be doing it right or I must be somehow not suited to this. But I think that, you know, there is the excitement of creation. So I love, love, love the finished product. Like I just say, look, I made this. I'm really happy that I went through the process. Um, But ideas are not the product. It's all about the execution. And we get so carried away with our ideas that we don't necessarily grind through that messy middle when your energy dips and you really you need to get through that boredom and just get back to it every day. Like this edit, I mean, I must say, I, when I had to read it that final time, I was like, I so don't want to read this again. I really don't. I do a, you know, my final, final hand edit 
before I give it to my proofreader. And this is like the second full hand edit, the whole book again. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do it. But I know I have to. So yeah, I thought that was a really good quote. The greatest threat to success is not failure, but boredom. So where is that true in your life? Where are you not getting success? And do you have to maybe grind through some boredom (laughs) to get there? (laughs) So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Valerie Moresco left a comment saying, this was fantastic. Rishi's process about poetry made me think I'm not crazy and maybe I'm a poet after all. I often have these little phrases that seem like they're coming out of the blue just pop into my mind and I feel compelled to do something with them, to honour them. The meaning emerges as I start to work with the phrase and see where it takes me. And yeah, Valerie, that sounds really similar to Rishi's process. So fascinating. Melissa Hartfield says, uh, oh, on William's episode about self-doubt, I just wanted to say this was a wow episode for me. I'll be listening a second time, but this one really found me at the exact right time. Thank you both. And finally... Ros Morris said, trying to make the familiar unfamiliar, making it strange so you get to a deeper or different truth. I love this piece on the craft and business of poetry with Rishi. And I uh, I follow both Ros and Rishi on Twitter and Ros actually reached out on Twitter to Rishi and he'll be doing an interview on her blog, um, uh, rosmorris.com, I think it is, <laughs> um, which is a great example of how doing a podcast interview can help you with marketing <laughs> because it can lead on to other things. So I'm really thrilled to have connected the two of them. And uh, I know these things spin out of things like podcast interviews because it's happened to me as well. So thank you to everyone who left a comment or emailed or tweeted. And you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. Send me pictures of where you're listening. I would love that. Or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. Kobo's author-first approach is one of the reasons they developed a promotions tool. This is an easy and affordable way for you to market your book directly to Kobo readers. They offer lots of promotions that don't require you to drop your price because they know when you're publishing wide, it can be a pain to coordinate pricing across multiple retailers. Any promotions listed as a percentage off, for example, a 40% VIP sale, mean you don't have to change your price as the discount will be provided by a promo code at checkout. If that sounds good to you and you want to sell more books wide, keep an eye out for the percentage off promotions and buy more, save more sales where you can submit titles and leave the rest to Kobo. And if you're taking part in a promotion, be sure to tell your readers all about it. The promotions tool is updated on a weekly basis, so make sure you take a look regularly to see what's on offer and if there's an opportunity that matches your books and marketing plans. Personally, I do this every couple of weeks. I have a a reminder on my Things app, my to-do app, which pops up and says, go in and submit to Kobo Promotions. So I do it every three weeks because that kind of does the sort of turnover. And uh, I aim to submit to at least three or four promotions every time. And I never get all of them, obviously, but I might get one and um, each time or one occasionally. But I certainly get 
you know, probably at least one a month. And uh, when I do, it helps me sell more books on Kobo across the world. And as I love to talk about, I've now sold books in 168 countries through Kobo. So if you want to publish wide, Kobo is a fantastic uh, site because they partner with a whole load of local ebook retailers in lots of different countries. So if you are already a KWL author and don't yet have access to the promotions tool, email the team at writinglife at kobo.com and they'll enable this for you. If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you get your podcasts, find them on social and you can create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Right, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time as ever is supported by my patrons. Wonderful, wonderful patrons. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks to new patron this week, Marcy L. Martin, and thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon and those of you who've been supporting for years and months and weeks. You're all fantastic. And I really appreciate the Patreon support. It demonstrates you find the show useful and you want it to continue (laughs) as we move into the 600s. Uh, You can support the show with just a couple of dollars or euros or whatever your currency is and you'll get the Q&A every month and also I do um, specials and percentage off my courses and books and all of the above. So you can support the show at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right let's get into the interview. Caitlin Duncan is the author of women's fiction, YA, thrillers and non-fiction under several pen names, as well as a ghostwriter of over 40 novels. Today, we're talking about Take Back Your Book, an author's guide to rights reversion and publishing on your own terms. So welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this topic. It is a fantastic book, so much in it. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Absolutely. Uh, So I am one of those authors who sort of had that storyteller bug from day one. As a child, I tended to focus a lot more on like movies and television. So I was very much into acting and screenwriting. And as much as my family has always supported my hobbies, I was encouraged a bit to get a quote unquote real job. And I was really good at math and science. So I went uh, to school for forensic science. So I didn't really do a lot of reading or writing when I hit my college years. So after I graduated, there was that big YA boom with Twilight and all these fantasy books. And I started following these authors on Twitter. And I realized that a lot of them had full-time jobs. See, I was always of the mindset that writing had to be a full-time job. So I never thought I could really do it for myself while I had a job. So after that, I had the bug hit me again. And I was so excited. And this time I sort of went to novels because I was really inspired by all of these authors who were working and also writing and YA wasn't really a thing when I was a a child at that age. So I started writing my own YA books and I wrote in the mornings and the evenings and I participated in NaNoWriMo for many years. And then in 2012, I submitted my first book uh, to Karina UK. It was a new digital first imprint with Harlequin and they were taking an unagented submission. So I am an author who's never had an agent. So I submitted and I actually got a deal for a trilogy. And then the rest is history at that point. 
Well, it's interesting too that you said, uh, so you've had a, a day job. What was your day job? I actually worked in a fertility laboratory for many years. Oh, wow. So, and you have a background yeah. in forensic science. Have you used that science background in your writing at all? I think I use more of my, the mindset of fertility, but as I'm going into uh, thrillers and everything, like I find that absolute love for solving cases and solving mysteries are definitely starting to come back. So I definitely use that in my writing. And then also being a ghostwriter with so many novels, how did you get into that as well? Yeah. So when I had my child, I was home for a bit. I was very lucky to be able to stay home. And after about three months, I really wanted to start writing again. And I was really, I was in between um, contracts at that moment. And um, a friend of mine was talking about how she was a ghostwriter. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I got into it. And then I mostly worked on upwork.com. It's a freelance uh, website. And I started off um, with very poor paying jobs, but Mm -hmm. they were very generous with five-star reviews. So I was able to sort of build myself up to that point. And then I had for about a couple of years, I had two uh, consistent clients. And then I also did work with the uh, packaging company as well. And then in 2019, I sort of really wanted to just just write my own books. And I was heading back into working full time outside of writing. So yeah, so that's where I ended up. And I had a lot of fun with it. And I learned so much. Mm -hmm. But definitely right now, I've just been leaning on writing my own books. Yeah, and it's always interesting to hear from ghostwriters as well. I think so many people don't understand how big a part of the industry it actually is. And like you mentioned, book packaging companies, and I, I don't have any issue with any of these business models. And the book packages come up with an idea, then they find someone to write it. And I know some people who write stuff uh, in that kind of model. And it is, it's interesting. It's work for hire. Like you said, you were at home and you wanted some work. And so that worked for you. But to the the book, Take Back Your Book. So why write this book? What in, in your publishing experience, why did you want to write this one? Well, Rights Reversion sort of came to me out of a need for myself to figure it out. When I was uh, in about to have my rights reverted, or I was talking to a couple of friends about it um, when my books had been out for a little while, I did some research on what authors do after reversion. And I really couldn't find any information outside of blog posts, but they were kind of years past. And it was mostly about the process of rights reversion. So I sort of found my way through the process. I leaned a lot on self-publishing models because obviously once your book is reverted, usually I would say 99% of the time you cannot get another publishing deal with that book. So I definitely leaned a lot on the self-publishing model with that. And then I just had a, it's one of those lightning bolt moments with this book specifically that I was like, well, why don't I just write a book for other people? Because I had spoken to a lot of authors who were going through the process or had been through the process and no one was really talking about it. And I was like, well, why don't I just write something out? You know, I've done uh, YouTube for a couple of years. So I'm used to like giving that sort of nonfiction publishing advice. So I just figured I would write about my journey and in the hopes that maybe it would help someone else if they were in a situation where they're like, okay, I can get my book rights reverted. What do I do now? 
fantastic. So before we get into the detail, uh, we should just say this is not legal advice. We are not attorneys or lawyers or agents or anyone <laughs> with with any uh, qualifications in this area. So this is just Correct. our opinion and experience mm-hmm. through learning this area. So I just wanted to make that very clear up front. So let's get into it. So you've mentioned rights reversion, but you, we should probably define it. So what is rights reversion and um, or when rights are reverted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I this is just my experience as an author. So again, I would always advise someone to talk to a lawyer or an agent about this stuff. So rights reversion is a clause in a, a lib- literary contract that allows authors to work with their publisher to regain some or all of their book rights after certain conditions are met. So this can vary widely when it comes to different contracts. So for instance, the the clause may read uh, seven years after publication, if this work is selling less than 250 units over the last three royalty periods, the author has the opportunity to ask for those book rights back. Yeah. And I just want to make it clear also for many indie authors we also sign contracts when we agree to terms and conditions. So rights reversion also applies if you're an independent author. For example, ACX have their seven years exclusivity contract, which many authors have signed. I signed because they were the only option seven years ago. And now I'm going through the process of getting those rights back from ACX exclusive in order to go wide. And even on a smaller scale, the uh, Kindle Unlimited 90-day period, that is essentially a contract of exclusivity for 90 days. And if you don't uncheck the checkbox, you stay in there. So I I think there's lots of different ways that rights can be reverted now. It can be automatic like the checkbox, but generally you actually have to ask for it, don't you? Yes. Yep. And that can be as simple as a a letter or an email. Uh, My experience is that it was all uh, digital, it was all over email because my publisher is in the UK. And I just stated that the contract, so I stated the terms of the contract and I asked for the book rights back and they gave me so far my uh, debut trilogy back. Right. And uh, obviously, you've talked to a lot of people about this. We we both uh, know authors who've done this. I, is it always that simple or are there often problems? I have not experienced any problems. One of the authors that I did interview for the book did experience a bit of a problem. And um, I have heard horror stories of authors having to hire lawyers to deal with this and publishers not getting back to them. I would say a majority of the time, it's pretty simple, but there are those instances. And that's uh, always why I advise authors to really, really consider all the options when they are signing contracts. Yes. And I think that's important. It's best to sort it out up front before you sign a contract, because otherwise it can be a lot sort of later in the process and you might have signed away things. So you mentioned there before a clause that might be in a contract, but are there any other clauses to look out for or to add if they're not there? Yeah. So when I've had four contracts total with this publisher and the first two contracts I sort of took on my own. I was very naive in that sense where I just figured, oh, this is a boilerplate contract here. Let me sign it. And then after that, I did hire lawyers for each of the other ones. And really the ones that they, the clause that they focused on a lot was the option clause. 
So that basically gives your publisher um, that you're working with the first look at your next project. So this is where a publisher can, like in the worst case scenario, not allow you to publish outside of their imprint ever again. But that's usually not the norm. You know, when it comes to option clauses, I always talk to other authors who ask me questions about, so try to make them as narrow as possible in terms of genre, timeline, and submission. So when it comes to like genre, if you're writing, say, adult thrillers, you may want to narrow that language a little bit to say, you have the option to read my next adult thriller. So if you want to go off and write women's fiction or middle grade books or anything like that, you're not beholden to the publisher for that. In terms of the timeline, sometimes there is not a timeline specified and sometimes there is. Um, I always advise to uh, try to have a narrow window of time. So say you you don't want them to consider the book for two years, because then you can't do anything with that book for two years until they say yes or no. So I would recommend the smaller the window, the better. And then when it comes to submission, that's more talking about what to submit. Some publishers may request a full manuscript submitted versus a proposal and sample chapters. I would always try to get the second option of just a proposal and the sample chapters if you can. Um, because personally, I never really liked the idea of drafting an entire novel with, without the promise of getting it sold. So if you can't get that removed, I know it's very difficult to get that clause removed just based on experience I've had in speaking with other authors. I, I would just try to narrow it as much as you can in, in those terms. Yes. And so that's the option clause. But I think even just the basic clauses around Mm -hmm. what they are um, going to publish. So in terms of the format, so, you know, we're not signing all formats existing now and to be invented, which is a clause. (laughs) Um, And and also by territory. So it will be much easier to get things back. So you mentioned like 250 units sold. It's much easier to sell 250 units across the whole world versus, say, the USA or the UK or in or Australia, for example. So specifying the country where they're publishing can really help because then you can prove things more easily. And then also the time limit for either the whole contract or if they don't exercise the rights. So for example, we have a lot of uh, authors who've signed away audiobook rights and then the publisher hasn't made the audiobook. So if you have something in there that says, uh, you know, the publisher has the audiobook rights for two years, and if they don't make the audiobook, the rights revert, for example. So th- those things that are controlling the, the hugeness of, of what they've licensed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and in, in terms of rights reversion too, I mean, I I have only really focused on asking for all of the book rights back um, at once, but I've heard success stories of agent and authors, uh, agents and authors asking for, like you said, audiobooks after two years, and they were granted because, say, the ebook and the paperback were selling really well, but the author wanted to go out and sell rights for uh, for their audiobook. I've seen that happen as well. Absolutely. So yes, being aware of what you're signing up front. And then, uh, so an author has signed a contract like you, they've uh, licensed the books, they want to get out of it. You mentioned just sending an email and then maybe getting a, a lawyer or attorney letter if necessary. Are there any other steps that people need to do in order to progress that? 
you're sort of at the mercy at that point, once you send that letter out, just getting it to, to the publisher and trying to exercise that time limit that's usually set within the reversion clause. So say, you know, they have 90 days to consider your, you know, your request, make sure you follow up in 90 days. You can do that probably solo for a little bit, but when it comes to escalating it a little bit, if they're not getting back to you or unwilling, um, definitely look into a lawyer. And as always, if you have an agent, that would be the first person to go to. Yes. Uh, Although, of course, we have to remember that a lot of agents (laughs) get their uh, money from working with publishers. So agents do have certain vested interests in things that an author might have a different view on. So it's very it's always important to decide on your own career choices. But I think you're exactly right about following up in terms of if no one responds, set a reminder on your calendar or whatever to just keep following up, you know, be the squeaky wheel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're in every right to be asking for this. So if you were a year in the contract and it states seven years, I wouldn't follow up about rights reversion. But if it's been seven, eight, nine years and you want your book rights back and they're not selling it anymore, I mean, that's you really have to step forward and try to get these rights back for yourself so that this book doesn't have to die on the shelves. You know, you can take control over it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So how does an author know that they actually have? their rights back? And what does it actually include? That letter or email has really been sort of that touch point when it comes to determining if you have the rights back. Be sure if you get one, you know, save it. I know there's instances of some authors who have tried to republish on Amazon and Amazon may say, you don't own the rights to this, you know, they need proof. So make sure you always you always have that proof available to you for that. So I, I would say just, just having that evidence is really all you need as far as my knowledge. Yes. Well, that's a really good point because an author might have an email from a publisher that says your rights are reverted for this book. And then they go on to Amazon or whatever, or Kobo or Apple. And there it, there's the book because the yes. rights department is completely separate to the publishing department. So then of course you can't republish that book until it's been taken down. So it's not just the, the email necessarily. You might also have to keep following up and actually get it get it removed, for example, that that might also happen. And it takes time for these things to disappear off the various stores, doesn't it? It does. And actually, I did run into that. One of my books was still available on Apple Books months after. And that is one of like the mistakes that I made when it came to going through this process was that I didn't check all of the links um, because once it was down from Amazon, I checked like one or two places and it was down. So I definitely would recommend going to, it may be tedious, but all of the places that your book was sold before and making sure it's down because they're still technically making money off your book if they're still up under their publishing house. Absolutely. So uh, going back to when you get your rights back, I, I get a lot of emails from people who don't necessarily understand what it actually means. So what do they have the rights to? You have the right to basically take that work and publish it on your own. You basically can do anything you want. You can publish it for sale. You can put it on your website. You can do anything like that once the rights are reverted back to you. Right. But it doesn't include the cover. It doesn't include the formats, that type of thing. No, no, no. Yeah. So in most, at least the ones that I've signed and I've spoken to some authors, the the contracts, they do have a, a sub clause for reversion that is uh, production files. So those are basically the final 
files before the book goes up for sale. So the publisher has those. Um, In my experience, I've only seen my book through copy edits. So I have not seen it after proof and I have not seen it with formatting. So they usually give you the option to purchase those production files and you can ask afterwards how much that would be and determine whether or not that's in your budget. I personally did not purchase mine back. The uh, price for them was just a bit too high for, um, and I wanted to save a lot of my money for editing. So I basically had to go back to the last version of the book that I had and re-edit it in a sense. And since it had been over eight years since I had published it, I, I did want to go in there and edit it as well. And then when it comes to covers, some authors actually have had their covers given to them, whether or not they were just given or they had to pay for it, similar to production files. Um, I mean, if you absolutely love your cover, you can ask your publisher for that. But um, I, I, I didn't get any of my covers back. I didn't want them. It had been so many years since publishing and I, you know, market market trends change and everything. So I would recommend probably um, starting from scratch with that if you're not so super excited about your cover and it's not too much to probably purchase back from the publisher. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, most people want to do a re-edit and we should call that maybe a light touch. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I some people get obsessed with rewriting, but I think we're at least going back through. I mean, even to things like updating the author bio and the bits where you list your other books and back matter and all of that type of thing. So yeah, definitely a read through. Plus, let's face it, the culture has changed. Uh, I've been reading a few sto- short stories recently that were published like 15 years ago. And the culture has very much changed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And some of these stories, I'm like, "Mm, you would not put that out now. So, or you would change things. So you would, I think it's a really good idea. And and on the cover, like you mentioned, oh, a publisher might give an author the cover, but where, where is the copyright? for the artwork for example and it, it, that to me is very worrying I mean what if you republish that book and it does super super well and then you get an offer from a merchandising company or something like that you wouldn't have the right contracts in place to right. actually be able to use that cover so I would agree with you I think re-editing reformatting get getting new cover design and also if it's a new edition right so you want to put a new cover on it right right And then what happens next? So let's say we've edited, we've got another cover, we've reformatted. What what do we need to do next? What else do we need to look out for? Uh, Yeah. So if you have everything ready to go, sort of the process that I went through is I wanted to determine upfront whether or not I wanted to go wide or exclusive with Amazon. I just... I I had to look at my plans long-term, like through more of a long-term lens. With traditional publishing, it's very, very front list focused. You know, what's the next thing coming out? But now like having my books back, it's like opened up so many doors for me. So I can do whatever I want with (laughs) with the rest of my books, like forever. So I definitely, you know, would recommend thinking about each book individually and seeing how you want to market it, how you want to publish it. Yeah. So uh, on top of that, too, it's just another tip that I thought of with republishing is that with a lot of promotions, too, uh, they look at reviews, the amount of reviews you have. And one thing you can do with uh, republishing your book is make sure you save your ASIN number. Uh, That's the Amazon uh, book number. 
and or the ASIN, it's numbers included, but uh, you can actually ask Amazon once your book is republished again to add those reviews back from the original edition, which I found uh, very interesting. So when I republished my my first reverted book, I had a lot of nice reviews already there from previously. Oh, that's good. So did you just go through like KDP help or something? Yeah, I went through uh, Author Central and they were able to link the reviews from the old edition to the new one. I mean, I would caution that if this was a book that you're really not proud of, and then you did a lot of editing, do you want those reviews if they were like mostly negative or mostly lukewarm? So that's something that authors can take into consideration, but definitely try to save that number from when your publisher published the book so that you're able to link them once you republish. And uh, because obviously emails go out automatically on various services when an author publishes a new book, but this isn't a new book and your Mm. readers might have already read it. So do you put a notice in the description that this is not a new book or what do you do to let people know it's a republication? I put it right in my uh, description. I said that this was a book originally published in 2013 of the same name. I would say that if you changed your title, that probably you probably would want to put some sort of note either in the description or in the beginning of the book, just so that maybe people don't think you're trying to to trick them into buying the book again, if it hasn't changed. I think if it's changed significantly, um, that's really up to you whether or not you want to give that sort of warning, um, especially to if you end up using a pen name and you just want to put the book out again under that pen name. Oh, that's a good point, actually. So you mean you've published it with a publisher with one name and now you're going to republish it under another name? Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, well, that's interesting. I yeah, I did that with mine. So I <laughs> I was one of those authors who published so many different genres under my name. So as I came to this, getting my young adult books back, I wanted to start fresh and separate them. I mean, it's Caitlin Duncan versus Katie Duncan, but I didn't want to like trick anyone like, or make them feel like I tricked them. So I did put that a little, little one-liner in, uh, in the description. So hopefully no one feels like I was trying to, to do that. Mm, Well, and to be honest, a lot of people might want to do that if they're coming back um, into their career after being um, sort of, I I know so many authors or who've done it the other way, who've been published under pen names and now want to put it under their real name Mm -hmm. um, as such. How's it working for you having the multiple brands? Because I know a lot of people question whether it's worth the the hassle, like different websites or uh, different email. Do you have any issues with the two brands or more than two if you have more than two? Yeah, I mean, it's just two for now. And this was something that I really considered for a while. I pulled out the pros and cons list, but also too, it's also really bothered me over the years that I didn't have separate adult and young adults personas. So you can go all in, you can do everything separate. If you have the time, that's probably the best way to do it, quote unquote, But I just, um, everything is on my one website. So it all just tracks back to that. I do have a separate Instagram that I started more recently for the Katie Duncan versus uh, Caitlin Duncan. I wanted to pull that audience on their own because I do have a YouTube channel under my name and the nonfiction book and my adult books. I sort of wanted to have them under Caitlin Duncan and then Katie Duncan for all my YA stuff uh, moving forward. But it's interesting because so much of this rights reversion stuff, you actually have to think about what you want 
the future to look like this time. It's it's not just a case of, oh, right to back, upload file. <laughs> right, right. And I'm sure there's people that, you know, do that if they're very happy with everything. But I took it as an opportunity to start over in a sense and just doing the things that like, I wanted to do based on all my years of knowledge. When I started off, I didn't know much about the publishing industry and it was, it looked so different too in 2012. So yeah, I took it as an opportunity. So it's really, I, I would recommend if you do have this opportunity, just think about some things that you would do differently or things that you weren't happy about and just move forward um, from there. Yes. And I'd also encourage people, if you have a lot of books, yes, it might take a lot of effort to get these rights back, but the money you could potentially make with more books. I mean, if it's only one or two, then great. But I know people who've, you know, gone back and got like 20 or 30 books and then putting those out. Yes. Again, it might be some work to get those published, but then you control them. You can do box sets, which most traditional publishers don't do. And there's just so many things you can do, right? Yes. So many things. And it's just amazing now with self-publishing. It's, you know, as much as traditional publishers can do, we can do it as well. Oh, well, that's good. So are you all in as an indie now? I am all in. There's a, it would, just with writing this book and like reflecting on my career, I'm in it for me. And I, and I've, I I just want to take part in this awesome community. The authors that I got to know are, are so great in in terms of sharing and everything like that. And I'm not saying that traditional authors are not, please don't misunderstand me, but I just, uh, I like the idea of sharing and just having that backlist uh, mindset because we spend so long writing our books and then for them to just be like, okay, your publishing season's over. Let's move on to the next where, and then the other ones are forgotten, which doesn't really make sense to an author because our books are our books and they're our babies. And So my mindset is 100% indie right now. And I think it would have to be a very, very good deal uh, for me to go back to trad. Well, it's interesting because, of course, your mindset, you said things are quite different to 2012 and your mindset there, you're very empowered now, you know what you're doing. But I, I do feel with rights reversion that many authors feel disappointed. They might be embarrassed, some even ashamed that things didn't work out with their publisher uh, because some authors are like, oh, it's my fault that I didn't sell enough books and therefore this book isn't good enough and there's no point in getting the rights reverted because how would it sell next time? So what would you say to authors who just don't feel empowered and have these sort of negative things around rights reversion? First of all, I would say you are 100% not alone. I felt that way for a very long time, to be honest. We put a lot of ourselves into our books and then you get with a publisher and you hope that they will fulfill their end of the deal for much longer than probably we understand. And then if the book doesn't sell or it's not selling later, it's absolutely devastating. And I was definitely in that sort of dark place for a little bit, but As I sort of expanded my network of author friends, and I I realized that this wasn't something that it's just isolated to that one person, it happens to all of us. And talking about these things uh, with other authors and talking about the good and the bad is very important. At the end of the day, we're in charge of of how our careers pan out. So we want to make sure that we're educated in that sense of knowing the industry and what the things you can and cannot do. 
So I would definitely recommend doing your research about the industry and making sure that you have enough people to talk to uh, about all of these things. Yes. And I think rights reversion, that's why I'm, I'm really glad you wrote this book. I mean, there are lots of books on rights now, but I think mm-hmm. rights reversion is a very specific thing. Yeah. And you've got some great steps in there. It's very practical. So I do uh, recommend it. And it's actually becoming, mu- well, it's funny, it's becoming much more common because authors are becoming more empowered. But yes. equally, public you know what we've seen in the pandemic and the switch to publishers maybe starting to appreciate the backlist is it might be becoming harder for some people mm-hmm. to get their intellectual property back so right. I don't know have you seen anything change since the sort of in the last 18 months or so uh, I've seen a positive change as you mentioned with people talking about things but I think that uh because so many people are speaking out, because so many authors are are becoming more empowered, I think the trad industry may catch up to that too. I'm I'm sure they're doing their due diligence as well. I mean, they are a business. So they want to keep authors as, as much as they can because they're in the business of selling books too. But I would just say the biggest change I've seen is very like very much so authors like speaking out and uh, talking to each other and um, helping each other out. Yeah, exactly. And also you can find recommendations for attorneys and lawyers and people to help take it up a notch. I think that's the other thing, kind of go into it as a gentle email, ask nicely, <laughs> know, know your rights, know what you've signed, all of that. And then step, you, know, you might have to go up this ladder of taking it to in a more serious way and certain wording in certain emails and that type of thing. So it's almost like an, an escalating way to get your rights back. But certainly starting with the nice email and this is why I think just going back to it it's that contract that you sign at the beginning like if you sign a good contract then it shouldn't be difficult so it yeah but many people now signed contracts years ago and didn't really know what they signed (laughs) yeah and and also too I mean as I said I I did hire lawyers in the past but I was the one to to negotiate and there is that nice thing you say and then it gets escalated and it's you have to determine whether or not what you really want. If a particular clause you want changed or royalty structure or anything like that, like you have to figure out what your sticking point is and be prepared sometimes to walk away with these, some of these contracts. If they're not going to, you know, if you don't feel comfortable signing it or you are really sticking in about something, there is that it's scary, but definitely uh, be prepared to to walk away if you need to. Yeah. And, and that goes for agent contracts too. I was just thinking yeah. of uh, at one point I was offered a contract with an agency and it said, we will take 15% of all books published under your name, reg- Whoa. <laughs> yeah, regardless of whether they are self-published or not, because we believe we are building your brand. Mm. So we get a percentage of of all your books <laughs> and that, that's <laughs> I crazy like, I know and I'm not going to give any names obviously but yeah. it's a pretty high profile agency with some pretty famous clients and so it was one of those situations where I thought well I could be the next xx big name author if if this is what this agency can do and on the other hand I'd already been working for like eight years building up my brand, author brand <laughs> And I was like, I don't think I can do that. Like, just hand over everything to do with my author name. I mean, thinking about it now, maybe I could have started a new author name or something with them. But it's funny, these things come up. And as you say, you have to 
try and take that empowered sense even if you're not feeling very empowered do you have to kind yeah. of yeah sort of go right I am worth something yes can I negotiate this contract or or what should I do I guess really thinking that long term Absolutely. And that's one of the things that's really shifted. As I said, I've I've befriended a lot of self-published authors, a lot of indie authors, and they, I mean, it just seems like the world has opened up so much because it's like, no, you don't just write this book and then it gets forgotten. Like you can do as many things as you want with it. And you have to look very much long-term in that sense with your books and not just, okay, when is the book going to launch? Okay. When is the next book going to come out type of thing? Oh, good. Well, that's very encouraging. And I highly recommend uh, your book, Take Back Your Book. Uh, So (laughs) where can people find you and everything you do online? Yeah, absolutely. So my main hub, the easiest is my website um, at caitlinduncan.com, K-A-T-L-Y-N-D-U-N-C-A-N.com. And my YouTube channel and all my socials are on there. And all of my books are wide. And I also sell uh, on Payhip, thanks to you, Joanna, for uh, for talking Ah, about that so much. So I do sell direct through my website. And that's really my uh, my go-to now when I buy books uh, from you and other authors. I try to see if they sell on their website. So yeah, that's, that's where you can find me mostly is on my website brilliant well thanks so much for your time caitlin that was great thank you so i hope you found the interview with caitlin interesting and that you'll have a think about your intellectual property assets and the contracts you've signed or the sites you've uploaded to and have a plan for changing things if your situation changes Next week, it's episode 600, so I'll be answering some questions from the survey I did before Christmas. Happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.